the word of God from Psalm 17, a prayer for protection. Lord, hear a just cause. Pay attention to my cry. Listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Let my vindication come from you, for you see what is right. You have tested my heart. You have examined me at night. You have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin. Concerning what people do, by the words from your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love, Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who treat me violently, my deadly enemies who surround me, they are uncaring. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They advance against me. Now they surround me. They are determined to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. Rise up, Lord. Confront him. Bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied, and they leave their surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm going to encourage you now to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm 17. There's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, and Psalm 17 can be found on page 478. 478. We're continuing in our series, Summer in the Psalms, and we find ourselves here in Psalm 17. Question as we begin, can you remember your favorite childhood story? Maybe you can picture the cover, you can see the creases and the folds in the pages from how many times you had it read to you or read it yourself. wonder what that story was. For me, one of my favorite stories was Corduroy. As a kid, I loved that story. It was a natural choice. I loved teddy bears. Confession is good for the soul. I had over 150 at one point spread around my room. Boy, that felt good to get off my chest. <sighs> but I also think I felt a connection to this little fella, Corduroy, trying to make his way in a world that was very confusing and far beyond his understanding, a world that wasn't going to slow down for him. You know, as we grow older, we don't actually grow out of stories. The stories just change. And now, rather than having stories read to us, we're actually often telling stories. And I'm not talking about the stories you may tell a family member around lunch today or friends or family from the week. I'm referring to the stories that we tell ourselves, often unheard and unseen. In Psalm 17, we hear David framing his circumstances. In other words, he's telling a story in prayer. 
You see, although David was anointed as the future king, he still served under King Saul for many years. And we don't know the exact circumstances of this psalm, but it seems that David has been wrongly accused of doing something. Maybe the setting is something like 1 Samuel 24, 9, where some men come to King Saul and they lie to him and say, David is seeking to do you harm. And so David is on the run for his life. Now here's the reality. I'm not aware of your specific circumstances and the nuances of your context. But I do know as a fellow human how easily my own heart wants to believe the stories others tell me about myself or the stories that my own forgetfulness and shame and guilt and fear and regret want to tell for me. You see, many stories we tell ourselves and live out in our daily lives are actually just lies. So hear this. There is shame in David's story that he didn't earn here in Psalm 17. There's danger. Violent men want to do him harm. There are real enemies surrounding him. And though this could turn him to despair and to desperation, it turns David to prayer. David turns in his suffering to supplication. He's telling God and himself the true story when the circumstances around him seem to say something completely different. Because here's the reality. The stories we tell ourselves in suffering and supplication matter. Psalm 17 is for us a model for prayer. So let's look at five stories that David tells in Psalm 17. There are stories that we need to tell God and ourselves and live out in suffering and in supplication. And these are true stories. We should tell ourselves these stories because they are true. They derive from God's character and his faithfulness. So let's set up the first story together by asking this question. Where do you turn when you are faced with trouble? When you are maligned or accused, when shame is weighing you down, when you're burdened by guilt, where do you turn? What is your first instinct? Notice what David does. He prays. And what's the story he relates to God in prayer? We'll look at verse 1. Lord, hear a just cause. Listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Verse 3. You have tested my heart. You've examined me at night. You've tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin. So let's not misunderstand David here. It'd be easy to read into his words that he's claiming to be perfect sinlessly perfect. But that's not what he's claiming. He's claiming to be innocent from the charge that's been brought against him. 
by others. So, story number one, to tell ourselves in suffering and supplication. I am not perfect, but I am innocent. I am not perfect, but I am innocent. Christian, this is the first story we need to tell ourselves. But we don't just need to tell ourselves, we also need to live it out. You see, we live in a very introspective and self-aware age. But it's navel-gazing in a vacuum. David's introspection is in the context of prayer. Because prayer brings us to willing self-examination. As we come into fellowship through prayer with the holy God who is himself light and love, he will expose the current state of our hearts if we will allow him to. James Montgomery Boyce was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many, many years. In his commentary on this psalm, he offers five questions that will help us know whether or not we can truly claim this story. I'm not perfect, but I'm innocent. If we can claim that story in prayer. Some, if not all of these questions are evidenced right here in this psalm. So question number one, am I being disobedient? That is not to say that suffering is always or even usually caused by your own disobedience, but perhaps you remember what Paul Tripp says. Often we trouble our own trouble through our disobedience. And our sin will cause a felt distance in our relationship with God, and it will affect our prayers. Isaiah 59.1 says, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. And the implication is, so what's the issue? The issue is, your iniquities have separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. So in suffering and supplication, we take the opportunity to examine ourselves. Am I living a double life in some way? Am I engaging in sexual immorality through my entertainment or with someone I'm not married to? Am I consumed by greed or covetousness or materialism? Am I lacking in love? Am I living judgmentally towards others? Am I consuming my wealth on my own desires? Am I overlooking the oppressed and the vulnerable? around me? That's the first question. Question number two, am I being selfish in my prayer? Voice observes that in prayer, it's easy to go beyond what is proper to ask for into what is mere selfishness. We want A, B, C, X, Y, Z. But in prayer, we're invited to push back against our inherent selfishness that our culture has cultivated within us in this me-centric age, this selfie existence, and we push back against that by asking God to do His will, not ours. Notice that every request in this psalm is a request for God to act in accordance with who He has revealed Himself to be. They are proper requests. 
But how well do you and I even know the character of God to know whether or not our requests are in line with His character? Or are we subversively subversively asking that our will be done rather than God's will? Question number three, to know whether or not this story can be said of us, I am not perfect, but I'm innocent. Number three, am I neglecting some important duty? And while the question is for all Christians, let me address the husbands in the room for just a moment, because God addresses us specifically in this area. The best way, husband, to make sure your prayers as a man are not heard by God is to live like a jerk with your wife. If you don't treat her as an image bearer of God, giving her honor, God has said he will not hear your prayer. 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker partner. I take that word weaker to mean the wife as the normally physically weaker partner of the two, as the norm. Husband, showing your wife honor as a co-heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So men, you can dishonor your wife by not listening to her needs. You can dishonor her by refusing to engage in conversation or by refusing to engage in healthy conflict resolution with her. And if that's what you choose to do, then you can be assured God will not hear your prayers. But there's an overarching duty here as well for all all Christians. And that is the duty of intimacy with God. Time with God, often expressed through the spiritual disciplines. Did you see the intimacy David had with God as Elizabeth read this psalm for us? References to God's presence, to the fact that God has visited him. The request that God would guard him, keep him. Friends, if we are neglecting the duty of cultivating intimacy with God, our prayers will be affected. Question number four, is there a wrong I need to make right? Jesus addresses this in Matthew 5. If you are in the midst of worship and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave off your worship. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and worship. So if you are aware of something between you and member of the covenant community of which you're a part, God's answer to your prayer, regardless of what you're asking for, is this. Go deal with what's directly in front of you. Step into it by faith. It may be fearful to have that conversation, but sojourn specifically as a church family. Let's commit to having that conversation. Let's lean into it as a church family. And brothers and sisters, no matter what local church you're a part of, let's commit to having the hard conversations with each other for the sake of each other's prayer lives. Voices, fifth question is this, are my priorities in order? Notice what isn't David's priority in Psalm 15. His priorities have nothing to do with wealth or prestige 
or platform or honor, even a legacy, or presenting some curated self-image to the community around him? No, what are his priorities? Not sinning with his mouth, avoiding the power struggles of violent men, and seeking God. It's a pretty simple existence, isn't it? How much would those priorities simplify our lives? Sometimes we expect God to deliver us out of the juggernauts we find ourselves in, even though we're in them through our own misplaced priorities. And we ask God to deliver us out of them without any thought or intention that we're going to adjust those priorities by His grace and by His help. See, we want God to kind of be like the weekly garbage truck driver. Come by regularly, clean up my garbage. We can meet next week at the same time with the same amount of mess, having made no adjustments. And God is certainly faithful. But God saved us to holiness, to a life of flourishing. And our lives will only flourish as we align our priorities by God's word. So these five questions will help us live into this important story of, I'm not perfect, but I'm innocent. There's a second story, though. I may feel forsaken, but God will hear me. I may feel forsaken, but the whole story is God will hear me. Look at verses 6 and 7. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love, Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. In these verses, David is repeating themes from Moses' song of deliverance way back in the book of Exodus. You see, God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt miraculously. But once Israel left, they found themselves chased by Pharaoh's army, trapped against the sea, hemmed in by mountains, facing destruction and a return to slavery. Exodus 14 describes their desperation. They feel forsaken, hopeless, terrified, and they cry out to God. And what happened? God had not forsaken Israel. He was working for his own glory and for their ultimate deliverance in a way that they would talk about for centuries to come. So afterwards, Moses sings this song. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. Did you hear the parallels with Psalm 16? Right hand, performing wonders, faithful love. You see, though David feels forsaken, he's recalling God's work in the past to frame his present requests. 
And if you're a child of God today, you may look at your circumstances and in the fog of confusion or trauma or suffering, you may feel forsaken. And those feelings are real. But the plain story of Scripture is that God never forsakes his own. So in your suffering, turn to supplication. Remember God's history of faithfulness to you and to others. Tell that story to God and remind yourself as you bring him into your pain, I may feel forsaken, but God will hear me. There's a third story here, if we will see it. In these same verses, I may feel forgotten, but I am deeply loved. David references in verse 7 God's faithful, steadfast, covenant, loyal love. And it's active here on behalf of those who seek refuge in Him. You see, many rebel against God's right hand, as this poem declares. In Scripture, God's right hand is a metaphor for the exercise of his intense, saving power. Seeking refuge in God is not the norm. Many disregard this right hand of God, the exercise of his saving power. They turn against it and they go their own way. But many, many in this room have sought refuge in God's right hand, in his saving power. And God's steadfast love for you is active now on your behalf. You may feel forgotten, but you are deeply, deeply loved. Look at verse 8. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Literally, the phrase refers to the little man in the eye. Now, I could make it really uncomfortable and creepy this morning and tell you to turn to the person next to you and stare into their eyes until you see your own reflection there. But I'm not going to ask you to do that. But if you were, you would eventually see your reflection in their tiny pupil the little man or woman in their eye. Why do some of you wear eye protection at your job? Why are safety glasses worn in shop classes and warehouses and construction sites and laboratories around the country? Well, because we want to protect our pupils. We treasure them. We value them. We know they're important to us. Why, when someone comes up to you and makes a sudden movement to you, do you flinch and shut your eyes? You're protecting your pupils. Friends, this is how God feels about his people. They are his treasured possession, as valuable to him as your pupil is to you. And he will go to greater lengths to protect us, his people, than we even will to protect our pupils. 
Story number three, you may feel forgotten, but you are deeply loved by God. Story number four, I am surrounded and pressed, but I am not overcome. David expresses in verses 9 through 14 that his deadly enemies surround him. They advance against him. They're determined to throw him down. They are like young lions eager to tear into meat, lurking in ambush. He is surrounded and pressed, but he's not yet overcome. I, I don't know what you're going through. But some of you may feel like this is your experience right now. Maybe your enemies are actual people in your workplace who, for whatever reason, have set themselves against you, seeming to want nothing less than to undermine you and to bring about your resignation or your removal. Or maybe your enemies are the voices of shame and regret that you hear in the deep, dark shadows of the night that mercilessly torments you, bringing to the surface some of the deepest regrets of your life. You're surrounded and pressed. Or maybe it's that temptation that seems just too strong for you to overcome. It's just determined to throw you down over and over again. And facing it is like being in the cage with an adolescent lion who hasn't eaten in months. And the reality is each one of us is surrounded by spiritual forces of evil that we cannot see who conspire for our ruin. And they are led by our great enemy who is himself described in the New Testament as what? A roaring and roaming lion. So friend, tell God that story in prayer that you are surrounded, that you are pressed, and remind yourself as you do so, yes, you are surrounded and pressed, but you are not overcome. Christian, you will never be ultimately overcome. Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of God? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, we are pressed and surrounded, but we are not overcome. So bring God into it. You see David's emotion here, his intensity? Look at verse 13. Rise up, Lord. Confront him. Bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. I wonder, have you ever prayed with that sort of intensity to God? Or does it feel disrespectful in some way. There's a fifth story to tell God and ourselves in these verses. Notice that David refers to men whose 
portion is in this life. He goes on to describe the overabundance of security that wicked men and women often enjoy. Ironically, often they're not living hand to mouth, right? Paycheck to paycheck, which may well be the experience of some of us in this room. No, these men and women have enough surplus to give to their children after they die. But last week, we saw in Psalm 16 that the portion, the inheritance, what all those who trust God will share in, is what? God himself. He is our portion. But not so the wicked. Psalm 17 now reminds us that the wicked's portion is confined to this life, this temporary existence. So David returns to this idea in the final verse of Psalm 17. He says, but as for me, but I, emphasis, but I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. Story number five. I may feel empty now, but I will be satisfied. Christian, the day is coming when all the sons and daughters of God will be freed from this groaning existence in a sin-cursed world. There's coming a day when we will no longer be sinning and sinned against sufferers. On that day that is coming, Christian, you will will be raised to awake in the presence of God himself. And God will dwell with us. That is the hope of the Christian as laid down throughout the scriptures. A redeemed creation, a redeemed and righteous new humanity, life of flourishing in the presence of God. That is your future. That is satisfaction. That is perfection. That is everything you have ever dreamed of on steroids to the nth degree. You may feel empty now. Oh, but Christian... You will be satisfied. Friends, this is good news for every single human being. It may not seem good news to the power brokers of our world, to the the wealthy and the secure in this life, but to the weak and the poor and the broken and the suffering and the sorrowing and the vulnerable and the sinning, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is recreating a new humanity to live in the presence of God in a redeemed creation which we join in by faith. So if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, isn't there something compelling about that story even if you don't believe it's true? Don't you wish it was true? It is. God is inviting you into this story right now by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who receive him when we awake upon our death or when Jesus comes again, it will be like waking from a bad nightmare into the sunny summer of eternity.
we will be satisfied with the presence of God. You may be sitting here wondering, so Isaiah, if I embrace these realities as the proper way to frame the narrative of my experience, if these are the proper stories I ought to tell myself, isn't this just some religious version of one of Bob Wiley's treatments in What About Bob? You know what I'm talking about? Am I just looking in the proverbial mirror? I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. Even though you don't feel good, great, or wonderful, you feel empty. You feel forgotten. You feel forsaken, surrounded, and pressed. When our own imperfections are mocking us in the mirror, how, if we are in Christ, do we know that this is not our full story, that it's only the partial truth? The answer is this, because Jesus Christ entered into our experience, embraced all of these broken realities to their fullest extent so that they may never be our true and complete story. Jesus was both innocent and truly righteous in all perfection so that God might justly drop all the charges justly brought against us. Jesus was truly forsaken by God himself so that you and I might be eternally received and loved and heard by God. Jesus, the greater David, was truly surrounded and pressed and overcome to the point of death only to conquer death itself for you and for me. Jesus willingly experienced true emptiness, emptying himself of the glory he had with the Father by embracing a human nature. Why? So that through faith you might experience the fullness of God's glory right now and for all of eternity. Friends, the stories we tell ourselves in suffering and supplication matter. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to celebrating this incredible gospel, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures and was seen by many witnesses. We are so grateful that you have not left us to the darkness of our own experiences. But by your grace, through faith, you've united us to Jesus Christ so that no matter how bleak our experience is right now, it is not the final word. So, Father, give us faith to believe. Give us strength to be faithful. Give us courage to pray. And give us that hope for the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.